Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. I'm going to rehash here just a little bit, but uh, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, then you know a few simple facts about our life here on Earth. Organisms uh, as a whole can only survive in a really slim portion of our environment. You know, you go too too high, gets too cold, less atmosphere, go too deep, gets too hot. Goldilocks principle, right? Yeah, Goldilocks principle. The same thing you see with uh, with our planets, exactly. That uh, the Earth is just right, whereas if you uh, you tread on out to, to Venus, then it gets, starts getting too hot, you go to Mars, it starts getting too cold. So there aren't many places in the world where we can actually live. Now, as humans, we, uh, we've managed to spread out just about everywhere on this planet because we have this, this intellect. We're able to, to build things that can, so, that can sustain us, that can insulate us, that can allow us to survive in, in otherwise deadly environments. But, uh, other members of the animal world have had to depend on pure brawn, on their bodies, on their peculiar physiology that allows them to really survive for ages in otherwise deadly situations. It's true. If uh, if you're a human and you live in a really cold part of the world, just imagine it being like 10 times colder and trying to survive out in the open yeah. because we have some some animals that we're going to talk about today that can do that and they really are the sort of chuck norris of animal species out there and they make humans look like coddled little babies yeah and baby a- humans <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's important to realize that, that oftentimes survival comes down to just degrees. Because we, it's easy to get caught up from the human perspective, not only in survival, but in comfort level. Mm-hmm. But I was reading about uh, various uh, species of, like, uh, of moss that were able to survive the ice ages uh, because they happened to be uh, close to a, a volcanic area where there was volcanic activity, where, where the, the volcanic activity in the area managed to, to raise the temperature just, just a few degrees necessary to sustain them and allow them to avoid extinction. So this episode is really an ode to these creatures and their superpowers. And to kick it off, we are going to introduce you all to the Red Flat Bark Beetle. Yes, this amazing uh, beetle is, uh, is a resident of northern Alaska, where obviously things get a bit chilly. And uh, this beetle is able to survive Arctic conditions through a really amazing uh, method. It uses a, a cocktail of internal chemicals that essentially works like antifreeze. Yeah, beginning in August, they begin to produce antifreeze proteins that bind to sites where ice might form. And then later in the fall, the beetles produce glycerol that drives their freezing point down as antifreeze does in a car. And finally, they begin to lose water in their bodies. They begin to dehydrate themselves. Yeah, their larvae have been known to survive temperatures of negative 150 degrees Celsius or negative 238 degrees Fahrenheit, which is crazy. Uh, and it's important to note that like one of the, the key things when you're talking about animals, uh, any kind of organism being able to survive uh, freezing temperatures is that if that organism has water in its tissue, mm-hmm. what happens when water freezes? It expands. Mm-hmm. And uh, this always brings me back to that part in Dante's Inferno where you have the individuals that are frozen in the lake of Cositis, the very bottom of hell, and they, they're weeping because of their sins and because of their suffering. The water fills their eye sockets because they're, they're gazing upwards. They're frozen with their... their their face looking straight up, 
when the when the tears freeze in their eye sockets, it mm-hmm. expands, adding to their their torment, their pain and anguish. Yeah, and so when when in, when tissue freezes normally, like that is happening throughout the tissue at a much smaller level, which is is disastrous. Yep, and has and that's why you see uh, a number of animals have have ways around this, often using something like like glycerol in mm-hmm. their system, and it's one of the the big hurdles to uh, to to freezing uh, a human body. Well, and, and perhaps using that tissue again or, or conceivably bringing that person back to life. Which is why the beetles have been of interest to cryopreservation, right? Exactly. Um, but it all kind of comes down to that dehydration for the beetles. And according to Professor John Derman from the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, he says that purposely dehydrating internal tissue concentrates the antifreezes several folds such that if they're exposed to really low temperatures, their body water then vitrifies. And this is forming a glass-like substance rather than freezing. And this really is amazing because if you think about it, these beetles are completely out there naked. You yeah. know, they haven't found any leaf litter to um, to try to get some insulation from. They're just out there bare in the snow doing yeah. this. Yeah, they have not knit any little caps for themselves. They do that, right? No, no, well, that would be cute if they did. But yeah, these guys don't need caps. So that's an insect that's really able to game the system in frigid environments. Mm-hmm. But what about really hot environments? Uh, particularly, say uh, the the Sahara Desert, where you'll you'll find just extreme temperatures that would just uh, just boil the flesh off of just about anything that would step out in it. We're talking uh, temperatures of uh, sixty degrees Celsius or one hundred and forty degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that's where you're going to find the Saharan silver ant or the Cataglyphus bombacina. Uh, biologist E.O. Wilson said of these guys that they live at the very edge of the envelope of life. And indeed they do, because what they do is kind of fascinating, because it's not just that they don't get scorched by the sun. It's that they have a really narrow window in which they can go out into the desert before they do get fried. And the reason why they go out at midday is because uh, uh, reptiles like lizards, which are predators for them, well, they are all nice and tucked away in their burrows, cooling mm-hmm. off. So they know they have this one window to try to go around and find the, the dying carcasses of other insects that didn't survive the heat and round them up. Yeah, their environment is a killer, at least above ground it is. And they know that at this part of the day, it has either it has driven away the animals that would eat them and killed things or weakened things so significantly mm-hmm. that they might themselves prey upon. And so they go out there with this limited window. They're, uh, they, they move fast. They have long legs. They're making as little contact with the, the ground as possible so yeah. that there's less time for that heat to rise up through their body and cook them in, in, their, in their skin. Yeah, it's like their their trucks are kind of like monster truck legs. They are longer mm-hmm. than usual. They're about a quarter of an inch long. And that raises them about a quarter of an inch above the ground. And that's just enough to get a 30-degree differential. Yeah, you don't want any belly dragon out there. Heck no. No. Um, they also scale any kind of vegetation they can to cool themselves. And then in a game of what looks like hot lava, they kind of sprint and hop over the terrain. <laughs> just like any of us do when we're, we're trying to get from the beach house to the beach yes. across the hot sand. Right. Yeah. If you're on asphalt and you have bare feet, you do the same sort of thing. Although this is what they do that we don't. Uh, sometimes they run with two of their six legs held up in the air as they try to navigate that scorching hot sand. Nice. So another way to try to cool that body, they can run a distance that corresponds to 100 of their body length per second. That's how fast they are. 
Wow. And they also um, have special heat shock proteins so that a hot body, their hot bodies continue to function. So uh, even though the, the temperature is really hot, it's still uh, it, it's still functioning. But again, they only have that slim window. And it, it I can't help but be reminded of this old, I forget the title of it, but there was an Isaac Asimov short story, one of the robot stories, I think, about uh, uh, humans on Mercury. And, uh, and they could, they could only venture outside in their suits, of course, mm-hmm. uh, for a very short period of time. And so, of course, the story ends up concerning someone who has become stranded. And, uh, and it's basically a death sentence if they're stuck out there. Now, here's where it gets really poignant. These guys have a, uh, a life expectancy of like six days. Wow. And so this, this is a big run for, for their lives, really, for food that will sustain them. Uh, for that amount of time because they will return from, from their foraging expeditions with about 15 to 20 times their weight in food. And not all of them will return, right? I mean, some yeah. of them are going to get scorched out there. But that's kind of the ant life, I guess, you know, and just in general. It's not about the individual. It's about the group, about the colony. Yeah, and what's interesting about this, too, is when they burst forth from, from their little underground burrows, they, they do it in hundreds, right? But they all go off in their own individual directions, and then they come back individually and and bring the spoils of what they have found to each other. Nice. Now, our next creature on the list is another one that lives in a realm of death, just a place of just lifeless, harsh circumstances, and that is the Himalayan jumping spider, which lives at heights, uh, altitudes of up to 67,000 meters or 21,981 feet, higher than any other species. So here they are on the top of the Himalayan mountains. Uh, they look like something out of Star Wars. Yeah, they have that very, you know, that kind of hunting spider look with all the eyes. They, they're cute. Yes. They're cute. I, yeah. I would think of those as the cute spiders. Yeah, I think like, oh, this is something you might find on Hoth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, some sort of like spider assassin droid. But anyway, um, it's lonely up there at the top. There's not a lot of species they can yeah. prey upon. Well, the, the other side, of course, is there's virtually nothing to eat them, so they're safe. True, but that's then, good. but then, there's nothing to eat. There is, there's like, there's literally nothing that they can kill and eat up there. So you're wondering, oh, how do they live? Sure, they found this place that where they're safe, but how do they sustain themselves? And the answer is wonderfully grim and and, uh, and dark. I love it, uh, and it all involves uh, the frozen corpses of insects that are blown their way by the wind. Yeah. The so it's wind, like passive eating here. Yeah, the wind is picking up dead frozen insect carcasses from uh, from lower altitudes and blowing them up, and then they fall right on the doorstep for the Himalayan uh, jumping spider, and they say, well, I don't mind if I do. Well, and they're flash frozen, right? So they're probably still really tasty, I'm sure. Yeah. Like, really fresh. It's basically the Trader Joe's for the Himalayan uh, jumping spider. I think they have a good deal up there. Yeah. And again, it's another environment where... This creature is depending upon the harsh environment around around it to kill its prey. Like it doesn't even have to do anything. It just lives in such a dangerous place that it has uh, it has outsourced the killing of prey. Yeah, and you could also say that it's exploiting this niche too, yeah, right? Yeah. It's saying, hey, let's go up higher because nobody's going to eat us up there. We've got food delivered at our doorstep. This mm-hmm. is great. And that's ultimately how you, why you see life in all these extreme places. It's because life creeps out like that slime mold in the maze, and it's going to find every place it can, it can possibly uh, get a foothold. All right, let's take a break, and when we get back, we are going to talk about a super leech. All right, we are back. 
We're going to talk about a super leech. But before we do, I want to point out that most organisms can't survive exposure to temperatures below zero degrees Celsius, let alone temperatures as low as something like liquid nitrogen. Yeah, that's negative 196 degrees Celsius, just to put that in perspective. Yes, but there exists a wily leech, Ozobranchus jansianus, or fancy pantsus jansianus, as I like to call it, that can survive exposure to super low temperatures by storage in liquid nitrogen. Which, again, is the stuff that generally you only think of the T-1000 surviving liquid nitrogen. You know, this is the freeze the bad guy and shatter him stuff, in case any of you were unaware. Right. And they can do this. They can survive in liquid nitrogen for 24 hours, as well as long-term storage at temperatures as low as 90 degrees Celsius, minus 90 degrees, for up to 32 months. Uh, they are also capable of enduring repeated freeze-thaw cycles in temperature ranges from 20 degrees Celsius to minus 100 degrees Celsius and then back to 20 degrees Celsius. So they're flexible here. Right. Now you're probably wondering, why is this leech so hardy? Well, it comes back to what we were talking about before. Life goes where it can, wherever it can get a foothold. And if you're a parasitic leech, well, then you're depending upon a host. And in this case, these particular leeches depend on sea turtles. Mm -hmm. They prey exclusively on sea turtles. And these particular sea turtles uh, swim in waters no colder than negative 2 or negative 4 degrees Celsius. So their, their prey, their host... Is uh, is a cold water organism, so they have to uh, have to survive and and really hack these cold conditions in order to get that meal. It's like if that person who uh, who's training to swim the English Channel, mm-hmm. if they you know it's so freezing, like if they never got out of that water, that's basically what they would turn into is this kind of leech. Yeah. Because the crazy thing about this leech is that they don't have any sort of cryoprotectant like that glycerol that we were talking about. Yeah. And they don't dehydrate their internal tissue. So scientists were like, eh, maybe this is just something that they have been able to do, adapt to over a period of time. Yeah, it remains kind of a mystery. Uh, they just they somehow evolved a highly specialized and largely unknown way of tolerating uh, physiological water freezing in their tissues. So, so again, the 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 old people with billions of dollars that want to live forever, very interested in these leeches, or at least the scientists that work for them are, uh, as well as you know anyone that is interested in uh, in space exploration about the idea of you know either a preserving a human body for long-distance travel mm-hmm. through space or to get into the whole uh, werewolf principle territory of figuring out how to adapt the human form or some variation of the human form for continued existence on other worlds or uh, aboard a spaceship uh, out in the void. What could we learn from these other species that we're discussing here today that could be utilized in the future, uh, perhaps at a genetic level, to change the species for survival uh, beyond the Earth. Yeah, and um, and you mentioned biogerontology. Um, Aubrey de Grey, of course, being the person who's out there saying, like, we just need to maintain our bodies like a classic car. And the the answer to this might be in some of these creatures and, and some of the ways in which um, those cryoprotective elements help them. Now, I'm thinking, too, of... Um, Trauma medicine, because we've talked about mm-hmm. this before, suspended animation, this ability to to um, t- to stop our vital processes and suspend them, has been really important in emergency medicine. So this is another area that we can get into. But I digress because we really need to talk about the Pompeii worm, and this is not a dance move <laughs> that I'm doing right <laughs> it now. It does sound kind of festive now that you mention it, but of course it's named for Pompeii, uh, the city, of course, destroyed uh, and buried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. And uh, 
they are really interesting looking critters. They, they, they're very vibrant looking. They look like some sort of fancy. Yeah. Like some sort of elaborate sushi of some kind, you know? Um, they are perhaps the most heat tolerant complex organisms on the planet. And these are the extremophiles that, that thrive along hydrothermal vents, uh, deep in the Pacific Ocean. Like so deep that they're, they don't, they don't even depend on light. There's no light reaching them. Lightless environments. That's right. There's darkness and there's the crushing pressure of a deep ocean that mm-hmm. they have to contend with. And yet they do it in style because they are wrapped in fleece-like mantles of symbiotic bacteria that kind of gives them this look like they've got a fur on or some sort yeah, of... Yeah, it really adds to that festive sushi look. Like, what did they yeah. garnish that Pompeii worm with? Yeah, some sort of vaudeville outfit or something. Um, they're about four inches long. That's ten centimeters long. And they live in papery tubes, which they burrow into the side of deep-sea geysers. And then you have to keep in mind that these hydrothermal vents are spewing a toxic brew of boiling water, sulfur, and metal compounds. Yeah, which just compounds the 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 harshness of that environment like they're they're essentially living in poison in, yeah. in heated poison without without light and and it was really when these were discovered uh, uh, in, the, in the past few decades it was surprising you know that like we we really didn't think that life could potentially thrive in such right. a harsh environment and it gave a uh, new uh, possibility gave us new possibilities concerning what life might look like on other worlds you know suddenly people were thinking about well you know they're they're are potentially places elsewhere in our own solar system, some of the Jovian moons, for instance, mm-hmm. where we might see life resembling this in harsh environments. You're right. If they're, they're saying if this creature can live at 176 degrees Fahrenheit or 80 degrees Celsius, um, what else can, can uh, survive such extreme conditions? And this is particularly true when you're looking at like the whole panspermia and, and life outside of Earth um, in something called a tardigrade, which I know we've talked about before, but these are called the water bears or also my personal favorite, moss piglets. Yes. Now, like the koala bear, it's not an actual bear and it's, it's not an actual piglet either. But yes, the tardigrade is, is probably the most famous spacefaring species, <laughs> uh, second only to, to humans, uh, because they have proven a remarkable ability to survive not only the void, but cosmic radiation as well. Now, with some, we'll clarify what constitutes survival, though. Right. Um, they are found in lichens or mosses and soil on mountaintops and in the sediment on ocean floor depths of 13,000 feet or 4,000 meters. They are one millimeter long orthopods. Um, their natural life cycle, I believe, is about a year. But mm-hmm. if they dehydrate themselves, the, the record um, that we know of, at least, is 125 years. Yeah, there was a key study in uh, 2007. Uh, this was uh, uh, this came to us from uh, ecologist uh, Igmar Johnson of uh, Christianstad University and uh, his colleagues. They put uh, different uh, different uh, species of tardigrade aboard a European Space Agency's Photon M3 mission again back in 2007, and they exposed uh, exposed uh, the tardigrades ter- to the vacuum for 10 days. Uh, some of them were shielded from the sun's light mm-hmm. and the accompanying radiation. Um, while others had to endure that uh, all that you know rich UV uh, radiation. So what they find? They found that those that were exposed only to the vacuum they survived pretty well. Like they they, they had a really good survival rating. Yeah, now, and they had little larvae that hatched into eggs and were fine too. Exactly. Now the ones that were exposed to both vacuum and solar radiation. Uh, there was only a 10% survival rating there. So that was a lot harsher environment, and none of the irradiated uh, eggs hatched. 
Right, but still, 10%. Yeah. That, that, that's amazing that they were able to survive simultaneous exposures. Yeah. Of the vacuum of space and radiation. And plus, when they were they were looking at the, the results here, they found that the, the pterograids must have some cellular mechanism that repairs radiation mm-hmm. um, uh, as well as uh, uh, radiation damage, as well as damage from drying out. There's evidence of DNA repair induced by this radiation. Uh, and and I actually found a 2013 study by the same group that were uh, that were looking at. Uh, at water bears again, and they said, quote, the results from tolerance experiments with drying out, freezing, and radiation are therefore consistent with the idea that the tolerance to all of these agents is based on the same mechanism. So surviving the radiation, surviving, uh, you know, dry environments, surviving freezing, it all com- comes down to the same mechanism that we're still trying to fully understand. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these uh, animals actually bring up more questions than answers. Right. But still, I hold out hope that one day I'll be embalmed yet alive to see my great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Or you'll be half water bear. Uh, I would be fine with that. Yeah, you'll They're be like adorable. a water bear centaur. Yeah. Somebody, I'm sure somebody will Photoshop that. Um, it, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. This, oh, dear. Yeah. The, the water bear is, is, uh, is a fabulous organism, the, the tardigrade. Uh, I mean, not only is it kind of adorable looking, but it's just so durable. Just so, it, it just, re- it's like all of these animals, it makes you rethink what life is and what life, where life is, is capable of thriving. And once again, it sort of makes us rethink our position in the world and how hardy are we and how adaptable are we. Yeah, again, Maybe we're not much. Yeah, again, we're the brains and uh, and these uh, species are the bronze by far. All right, well, on that note, uh, you know, let's call the robot over. Let's catch up on some listener mail. First of all, let's uh, let's go through some uh, some mail that we received via Facebook. Jade writes in and says, "I recently discovered your podcast and it is now my favorite part of my day. Each day I get home from university, sit down with a cup of tea and listen to your back catalog of podcasts as I relax. I find it interesting and educational, but not too heavy, so it's perfect to listen to as I wind down or head to bed. Thanks so much for your work. I respect and admire you both and actually hope to one day have a similar career to both of you as I uh, love uh, learning, teaching and writing as well as presenting." Keep up the utterly amazing work, and thank you so much for making my day better. Thanks, Jade. Yeah, so there you go. Stuff to blow your mind goes great with tea and great with sleep. So And university. And university. Yeah. Uh, we also heard from LD. LD writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. First of all, I hope that you're not tired of hearing it yet, but I love the po- podcast. No, no, we're not. We don't, we don't, nope. get, don't get tired. It, it just doesn't wear thin. Um, LD continues, I co-own a small local music and art supply store, uh, Rocker... Rock, Paper, Scissors in Cincinnati, Ohio, and we exclusively play local music in the store, so I was definitely taking notes during a musical time machine for your brain. Since we're too small and new to have any employees, I'm here six days a week, and I'm happy to say I haven't gotten sick of the music yet, though I'll admit to cheating a bit when we're really slow, I listen to podcasts. In contrast to previous, more corporate retail jobs where we were forced to listen to the same two hours of canned music, I feel like I'm constantly having new music uh, from new local bands to listen to and it keeps me on my toes, uh, thinking and problem-solving more creatively. I love the information that new music makes customers linger longer, as most of our customers haven't really listened to local music before. Maybe we can we can use that fact to uh, our advantage to sell local music uh, uh, compilations to other retail stores. Uh, thanks again, uh, f- uh, as always, for the great and thought-provoking content, LD. Man, that store sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's got art supplies and music. I agree. And exposure to the local music. Yeah, it's got it got everything. So yeah, check that out. Again, that store is Rock Paper Scissors in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
All right, we also heard on Facebook from Jack. Jack wrote in and said, I have discovered your podcast recently and have listened to a couple of dozen episodes so far. I truly enjoy the perspective you bring to such a wide variety of topics. As a respiratory therapist specializing in hyperbaric medicine and wound care, I have used medicinal leeches on a number of occasions on compromised flaps and limb reattachments. I was gratified to hear your talk on their history and use uh, in today's arsenal of medical tools. I have also used maggots, perhaps six times. They are used to debride stubbornly necrotic wounds. Since they would seem to be equally exotic by today's cultural standards, perhaps you can present their history and use at some time as well. Keep up the stimulating talks. They make my days much more interesting. Maggots, you say? Yes. Wow. You know, with the leeches and the use, uh, you know, as a medical concept, I wasn't too taken back. But I have to say, maggots never ever entering my my mind space like that. I feel a little bit queasy with that. (laughs) But yeah, maybe we should do an episode on maggots. That's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense because they're so small. And when we were doing some of the research, it was the the tiny veins in the child's ear. I think that was Mm -hmm. the first breakthrough. Um, during surgery that it was that leeches were helpful. So I can only imagine in other um, areas of surgery where that would be helpful as well. Well, it's, it, it's like like a, uh, the analogy I like to go to is it's like that movie where uh, the hacker has been on the, uh, the the wrong side of the law, but suddenly right, the police have right. to have to catch the hacker and make the hacker work with with them to stop an even greater adversary. It's the same thing. Uh, animals like maggots, like leeches, they have learned to hack the system, and we have developed ways to use the hacker to our advantage. Well, the thing is, maggots are usually aligned with death, right? Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily think about them as being life sustainers, but here you go. New view. All right. We also heard on Facebook from uh, Camilla. Camilla's uh, written in uh, before. She she says, hi there. I just finished listening to your episode about elephants. Great stuff as usual. And this article pops up on my newsfeed. And she sent us one about uh, elephants distinguishing age, gender, and ethnicity from human voices, Mm -hmm. which was uh, an interesting um, um, article. Uh, She says, also, just because uh, here's a picture of me and a friend riding an elephant in Thailand. It was a great experience, but looking back on it, I probably wouldn't do it again. Although the elephants looked very well treated and well fed, uh, we'd buy a bunch of bananas and feed her as we walked. Uh, They would be tied up to a post when not riding with tourists. She was very gentle and understood a few command words in Thai and a few gestures. The guide had a stick that he'd used to scratch her behind the ear, and she would turn in that direction. So yes, Camilla brings up a, a good point again about elephants in our world. And uh, and I have I may have actually been to the exact same place that she rode this elephant because uh, when I was in Thailand, we had like the same experience, you know, where the the, the elephants are really well cared for and mm-hmm. the, the mahouts that uh, handle them to, you know, they, they they seem to approach the elephants with a lot of love and there's a great lot of respect for elephants in Thai culture, but at the end of the day, you still have this situation where humans have taken this this wild animal and and dent it to their needs and their will. And how do you relate to that, even in the best of circumstances? So, yeah, elephants definitely is one of those things that uh, people are very sensitive about. And we got a lot of really great feedback mm-hmm. about that episode. Yeah, some more that I'll hopefully uh, read in the future. So, in the meantime, you want to add to the uh, the mail here. You want to get in touch with us. You want to ask us questions. You want to recommend topics. Well, there are a number of ways to do it. For starters, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's the home base. You'll find all of our podcast episodes there, our videos, our blog posts, etc. Links out to that Tumblr account I was talking about, to the Twitter, to the Facebook. It's all there. In addition to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, don't forget to check out YouTube's Mind Stuff Show because we've got some videos up there that you might enjoy watching and learning about other topics. And if you have a comment that you would like to send our way, you can do so at BlowTheMindAtDiscovery.com. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 